second hour and our series that you should have some paperwork for. The guys were distributing the notes on the way in, so we need to make sure everybody has. And if you don't, we want to get some to you. So John has some over here. Anybody over here need? And then the guys have some over here. Anybody? You guys did an excellent job. Looks like we have one here. And these are new notes. We've been for the past five weeks going through this series and giving out notes, but uh, we completed the notes that have been distributed already. So we start on page 16 with a new set for our sixth session in, as you see on the screen, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say I, I Really Am? On the top of page 16, the title of this particular session is Functional Identity and Our Worship Disorder. So here's what that is saying, functional identity and, and worship disorder. Our functional identity comes from the fact that who we present ourselves as, who we say we are, like to think we are, or present that we are, and who we really are, can be quite different. And that's what we mean by functional identity. There's functional and there's real. So there's your real identity and then there's how you function in life and what that says about how you really see yourself. So we put on airs. And in certain environments, we can conform to those environments. And we become what's expected of us to, to present. But that not, may well not be who we really are. So one example of that is dating. And we had a counselor a couple of years ago do a, a marriage retreat for us. And he said that the dating process is, you're not really dating me, you're dating my representative. That is, I have someone, this persona that I'm putting on, that's representing what I know you want me to be, what I should be, and so then the dating process becomes very artificial often, and you don't actually really get to know the person. And if you don't take premarital counseling, you end up getting married, well, now you're married to a person who really isn't who you were dating. And nobody really says this, but, you know, a little bit later on in the marriage where that starts to come to a head, and you go, you know, you used to be, and that, nobody says this, but this is the deal. Yeah, but that, was me. that wasn't me. That was my representative. So you're married to me. And then all of the real you starts to come out in a more intimate setting and over a longer period of time. So dating is an example of how we put on airs, how we, what we present is not functionally, functionally who, we, who we always are. We like to think of ourselves as better than we are. And so there is very often a mismatch between how I think about myself and how I really am. There's a, a difference between my profession, I don't mean my career, I mean what I profess to be, my profession and my function. And Jesus says, you know, really that's, that's not possible. I mean, it's possible for you to do it in front of other people because other people can't see your heart and know inside you what you're really like. But of course, God can. And Jesus says, he says this. He says, no good tree, this is Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6 and verse 43. Luke 6, 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man stores up good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man 
brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For because out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So what Jesus is saying is that there's a root, and that root is what he calls our heart, and then there's the fruit that comes out in our actions and our words. So if I want to know what I really am, I need to examine how I talk and and what I do. Whatever I profess about myself, whatever I would like to think about myself, what I really am is what I say and do. Now, here's the irony of all of that, though. Ironically, we really can't improve our performance in what we say and do because we're too busy trying to perform. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, the last several weeks, we looked at some things that the gospel does for an individual in justification, in regeneration, in adoption. You guys may remember some of that, and we were looking at some of the practical implications of that if you really grasp what those are. And one of those is that it helps you avoid what we call the performance trap, that you don't, you don't have to see yourself now as having to perform to make yourself acceptable to God because in the gospel, the good news, Jesus has done what's necessary for you to be accepted by God. So now, okay, God loves me. God has accepted me. God's good with me because of Jesus. And now because that's true, now I don't have to pretend. I don't have to pretend I'm better than I am. As long as you keep on pretending you're better than you are, you really can't actually get better. So one of the reasons we can't improve our performance is because we continue to try to perform. So if you, if we would grasp those implications that we talked about over the last several weeks, now because we are accepted, because we are justified, we can be honest, we can be truthful about ourselves and actually start the process of improving. So first paragraph, top of page 16, due to our fallen natures, that is that we are all sinners, we tend to be blind to the things that move us, which are the catalysts that fuel our engines. Often those who are biblically literate have no sound grasp on the ruling motives of their hearts. So people who know the Bible quite well and who can go through all of the theological terminology, justification and propitiation and all the stuff I was talking about over the last several weeks, and you might be able to ace the theological test, but maybe not so much the Christian life test. Those are not necessarily the same thing. Because we don't have a handle on what's really moving me, what's really motivating me. And then add to that the second paragraph. Suffering brings weariness to the soul, which can be made worse by sin and idolatry. What that's saying is this. We already have a problem with being fallen, all of us, which is going to create then blind spots for us. Now you add to that living in a fallen world, not just being a fallen person, which all of us are, but now I'm living in a fallen world. i got other fallen people around me who are messing with me, who are making life difficult for me, and I'm also living just in a fallen creation that's got all its problems. It's got a pandemic. It's got diseases that go around. So people get sick, and you get sick, and you've got all that to deal with. And your parents get sick, and now you've got to take care of them in a fallen world. And all of these things impinge upon you. So suffering brings weariness to the soul, but it can be made worse 
if you're a person who's living in this idolatrous fantasy world about who you are and about what it is you're supposed to be. So you put those two together. The first paragraph, our fallen natures make us blind, and then this suffering that goes on in a fallen world because we're surrounded by fallen people and the creation itself is fallen. Second line there, second paragraph, the purity of your worship directly impacts the health of your soul and the identification and dismantling of false worship structures, that is, identifying the idols and misplaced desires that are at their root will help your soul find rest. So as we go through this today and in the coming weeks, it's my hope that you'll examine what's happening in your life differently, that you'll look at it radically differently, and as a result, instead of it being made worse by looking at it the wrong way, it'll be made better because you're looking at it accurately. Heart idols, middle of that paragraph, are the fruit of improper thinking, and if this thinking is left unchecked, the conclusions reached in the midst of a season of suffering can lead to further harm by seeking counterfeit solutions. That's a mouthful, but what? What it's saying is we've all got our stuff that's going on. And you might have a period of time in your life where all the stuff going on in your life is great and life is great. Maybe. But don't settle in on that because it'll change. You guys have heard me say, because the Bible talks so often about trials, about difficulty, that you're either in a trial, you've either recently emerged from a trial, or using my good Eastern Kentucky Southern, you're fixing to go into a trial. You're either in one, you've recently emerged from one, you're getting ready to go into one. So don't get too comfortable in that everything's great. This side of, this side of heaven. And that being the, the case, when you got your stuff, whatever yours is, in your bag, every, every person that walked in this room today has a set of baggage, and everybody's baggage is different. But whatever your baggage is, whatever the load is and the burden is that you're carrying, what it's saying here is it can be made infinitely worse if in the midst of it you're not thinking about it properly. So now I'm going through whatever it is I'm going through, but I'm not processing it in a biblical way. And as a result of that then, I make decisions in the midst of this thing about what needs to be done about it, what will make it better, what will make me happy. And those counterfeit solutions then can be hard to unwind. And they'll follow you to the next thing and the next thing, and they compound themselves. So getting the thinking right, the earlier we do that, the better off we are. So we've got two problems. The first paragraph is saying we've got a blindness problem. That is, we just you know, don't automatically know what's going on in our hearts. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, Jeremiah 17, 9 famously, that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It asks rhetorically, and the answer is nobody but God. So who ultimately know? You've got stuff going on in your heart and stuff that's motivating you, and so we've got a blindness in our fallenness. And second paragraph is saying this, not only do we have a blindness, but we have a narrowness. 
Because what we do is, as I said to my community group last Sunday, uh, I said that we tend to reduce the size of our lives to the size of our circumstances. That's the narrowness I'm talking about. We tend to reduce the size of our lives to the size of our circumstances. That is, I see my life through the prism, through the lens, from the perspective of what's happening with me. And that's my life. And then I put a a label on it that says, my so-called life. I mean, what kind of life is this, man? With all that, and then you're just seeing that narrow with the junk you got going on, the baggage. And if you, can't, if you can't lift your gaze beyond that, if you can't see beyond that, now you just live within that tunnel, within that narrowness. And you are making decisions within that now. How do I get out of it? What do I got to do? All the while, not consulting God and God's solutions for these things. Even a life, even in the midst of a life turned upside down, we say here, You must remember, Christ did not come to save you from a bad marriage or a lousy job. Yikes. I mean, at least not yet. I mean, if you're in a bad marriage, you know, you'll be out of it at some point. You know, death or the Lord's return. But he he didn't come to immediately rescue you, deliver you from that, or your lousy job. You know, some of us, we, we narrow it down. My life is the size of what's going on, so just take your job for a minute. And think about your job. And you say, I don't need to think about my job. I think about it all the time. How horrible it is. What an idiot my boss is. And that's the deal with many, many, many people. They, they've got their job. They've got whatever it is going on in their life and they, their marriage, their relationships, and their life is narrowed down to that and they think about it only in those, in those terms. We've got to remember that Christ didn't come for that. Doesn't mean Christ doesn't care about that. That's completely different. He cares quite a bit about it. He actually writes a lot about relationships. He writes a lot about marriages. He writes a lot about work and being an employee and all of that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about it, but that that is not your life is the point. Your life's bigger than that. And actually, one of the ways that you are then helped in the midst of that is recognizing that your life is more than that. And so, last line there, your greatest need remains Christ for your salvation and your ongoing growth in Him in the midst of your junk. So, Counselor Paul Tripp says this, the good news of the kingdom is not freedom from hardship, suffering, and loss. It's the news of a Redeemer who has come to rescue me from myself. His rescue produces change that fundamentally alters my response to these inescapable realities. I mean, that's a you know, fancy way of saying it's inescapable. You're in a fallen world, therefore you're going to have to deal with fallen stuff. And because that's inescapable, what you need then is a different, all we all need is a different perspective then that alters the way we respond to them. As much as you think, you know, a move to Florida is going to change your life, especially in January. <laughs> Some of you have heard me say this before, but you, you can change a dress, but that doesn't change your heart. 
You can relocate, but you take the same heart with you. So if you're not someone who can be content where you are, what makes you think you'll be content somewhere else? Because in a fallen world, there's always something else. So you hate January and February here. I've told you guys enough. I'll try to lay off it. Keep it to yourself. Because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help anybody to hear you complaining about how horrible it is. Okay? It doesn't help you, first of all. It doesn't help anybody else. And further, you know, find your paradise somewhere. And I guarantee you, based on the authority of the Word of God, it won't be a paradise. Because this side of heaven, there ain't one. And Joel Osteen can write a best-selling book, and people can foolishly buy it, called Your Best Life Now. But I'm here to tell you, based on Scripture, you're not going to experience your best life now. And if your best life is now, you know what that means? You're going to hell. (laughs) Your best life's actually later. (laughs) And Lord willing, in heaven, not hell. So middle of page 16. Humility, then, positions you to receive Christ's grace. The late David Paulison, another biblical counselor, said, Christ powerfully meets people who are aware of their real need for help. Christ's forte is our acknowledged need in the face of compulsions from within and pressures from without. So as we start this, then, if you could take an inventory of your own heart and say, am I that? Am I aware of my real need? for help. Because Christ's forte is our acknowledged need, we acknowledge our need in the face of the compulsions that both storm us from outside. We get lots of people telling us the way it should be. We get advertising telling us the way it should be. My life doesn't measure up, and so that gap makes me discontent, makes me angry, makes me frustrated, whatever it is. So I've got an internal thing going on. I've got external things coming at me. But Christ meets people who are aware. Hey, I need help to escape that. I need help to escape my own heart and its deceptiveness. I need help to escape listening to the voices from outside telling me the way it ought to be. And Christian counseling is counseling which attempts to, at least, expose our motives, our hearts, and our world in such a way that the authentic gospel, then, is the only possible answer. So, we're, you know, you got an anger problem. We're not looking to do anger management. Too many people want to do sin management. But God wants to uproot sin, not manage it. So it's, it's, it's not about giving you tips on handling your, your anger. Those, those may be helpful, but the ultimate solution is not that. The ultimate solution is to identify what it is that's going on in your heart that's causing you to over-desire sometimes even good things, but because they become ultimate things, they then become bad things. And that's what the kind of counsel I'm going to do here and the kind of counsel that we want to give to people, tries to do that very thing. So then you say, hey, the only possible answer is not management, man, it's Jesus. Jesus changes me from the inside out. And everything Jesus did radically changes my perspective so that I don't escape necessarily the problems that I have, but I live differently within them. I respond differently within them. So the Christian's 
true identity. The Westminster Catechism famously states that man's chief purpose is to, quote, glorify God and enjoy Him forever, though sin has taken humanity away from this original position and purpose. Individually, we were created to serve God, but sin confused everything, tangling our hearts with pride and false idols and false securities and false saviors, all knotted together into one distorted, disordered mess from which we cannot free ourselves. Only by grace are we given eyes to see the depth of our complex hearts and two-faced motives, and only by grace do we find a great physician committed to untangling our disordered hearts. Hearts are continually enticed, tempted, and deceived from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. As 1 John 2.16 says, hidden and insidious desires are always looking to shape lust-filled hearts. Now, you guys are turning the page, understandably, because we got to the bottom of that one. Good. But I'm going to comment on the bottom of this page, okay? Because it's got that word lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and then it says in that last line, hidden and insidious desires are always looking to shape lust-filled hearts. So I want you to understand that when that's Old English, that is coming from the King James. So in the, in the newer versions, like the New International Version, instead of lust, it says the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. So when we say lust here, we don't necessarily mean sex. That's what we most often mean when we talk about lust. But that's not what's being referred to here. It includes that, sure, but it's not only that. But rather, it is our desires, and if you substitute the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, hidden and insidious, then desires are always looking to shape our desire-centered hearts, what we want most. If you want a synonym for that lust-filled hearts idea, it's what we want most. Now top of page 17. You choose things that you perceive as good and desirable, things you think will result in success and comfort and significance. Over time, these metamorphose into your identity. These things that give you this comfort, that fill your desires, your lusts, what you want, can become who you are. Rosaria Butterfield says, how do we make an identity out of temptation? That is, so I got a, a temptation, I've got a pull towards something, it has a draw on me because of the desires of my heart. James chapter 1 says that's the way temptation goes, it's like bait dangled before a fish. And then the fish comes and bites, and then you're hooked. That's the process of temptation, James chapter 1. And Rosaria here asks, how do you make an identity out of that? And she says, by collapsing what you desire with who you are. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier, where we minimize, we reduce the size of our lives to the desire of our circumstance. And here, you collapse what it is you want to be identified with, with who you are. I've got to have this. And if I don't have this, I won't be fulfilled. Just as an aside, but I think an important one, Rosaria Butterfield, anybody know that name? So she was a professor at Syracuse in women's studies, I think. And she was a practicing lesbian. 
And I have her book, I've read her book, she's written a few now, but her first book, um, Con Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. And she was a practicing, and she goes into detail about her life and what she was like, and you just, you just look at her and you go, wow. And there she is in New York and Syracuse, and she's in this whole liberal environment, and she's living her whole li liberal life. And somehow a Presbyterian pastor there and his wife start up a conversation with her. They start exchanging letters with her. And she's just these idiots, the Bible, all of that stuff. That's her initial reaction. But over time, this guy just kept persisting. He was very kind to her and invited her over to dinner with him and his wife. And they started having these dinner discussions. Well, you know where this is going. Rosaria is a follower of Jesus now. But she has great insights on our desires and how they become our identities. And, and she identified herself fully with her desires, in her case, sexual desires, her circumstance, and this is what I am. But when she came to Jesus, she saw a larger picture of who she is. So here are some examples. Well, before I go on to the examples. So you can collapse your desires into becoming your identity, and you can, as I said earlier, collapse your experiences into who you are. And these things merge, your desires and your experiences, because I identify my life with my narrow perspective, and then I create desires that want a different one. So I've got these experiences going on in my life, but I identify my whole life with what's happening in my circumstances. And if I'm not processing those right then, I create desires for a different kind of life. So I'm in lousy circumstances and i got a lousy attitude within it. Other than that, life's good. So examples. Here's a man who may desire to become successful in his career. Nothing wrong with that. But if he's not careful, he can start to place his value in his career. As a result, his career becomes his identity. His focus turns away from Christ and onto the many opportunities or threats to his career. And as a result, his joy or his soul health links to his performance at work, which can manifest a multitude of false worship structures. So one of the things we do, and I, I make the mistake of doing it sometimes still, but I try not to, is when we meet someone, one of the first things we say is, what do you do? And the reason I try to avoid that is because I don't want what someone does to become the most important thing about them, because it's not. And I don't want them to think, I think it's the most important thing about them, because it's not. The truth is, whatever you answer to that, when I ask you, what do you do, and you tell me what you do, next week that could change, couldn't it? And the fact that what you do changes doesn't mean that your value has changed. So we ought to get better at thinking about ourselves and then thinking about other people in terms of what's really valuable. And it's not primarily what we do, but we can get so identified with that. And so a man in his career or a woman's desires to be the perfect mother. She just starts to define her worth as that. And when that happens, her children's behavior in public will take on a self-focused commentary on her. And she becomes fearful about how their actions reflect her parental parenting ability. 
So her joy or soul health links to something apart from Christ. I mean, a career, raising kids, you can just make the list endless. There are all of these things that can take our focus off of where we really are supposed to get our identity. You parents, you know this temptation. We all do. I, we raised two girls. I know this temptation. I know this temptation as a pastor. You've got to be kidding. You've got two kids, my girls. If they go, if they go off the deep end, what, what happens? Right? What happens to me? How do people look at me? So I'm concerned, if I'm not careful, I'm concerned about my parenting more about what it says about me than what their behavior is doing to them. And as a result of that, then, you can set up structures to try to keep that from happening, which actually aren't helping the kid. So let's just sort of try to corral that. Let's try to make sure that this kid knows that if you don't behave the proper way when you're at church, then your dad and mom are really going to be ticked at you, and I'm going to give you that dirty look that only dads can give you that scares you. We got it? So we got an arrangement here? But all the while, that kid could just be putting on the show at church, right? False identities can even attach themselves to ministry. If a pastor's identity shifts away from Christ to being a pastor, his allegiance will become askew. He'll analyze trends in church attendance, the reception of his messages, or the divorce rate of couples he counsels, and he reaches unfortunate conclusions about himself. So that's an ever-present temptation to say, how's it going and how am I doing and measuring your, your ministry, your career in this case, against results. In all cases, their thinking turns temporal, that is time-bound, and the focus is inward. God's role of provider becomes the primary attribute of worship. You guys see that? God's role of provider becomes the primary attribute of worship. That is, the reason I worship God is because He gives me stuff. That's what that means. And that becomes primary. Now, God does give us stuff, and so we do worship God for that. But we should worship God first for who He is, not what He does. Just like your value is not in what you do, guess what? God's value is first in who He is. But if you have this skewed approach, then the primary attribute of our worship becomes God as the provider. And unanswered prayers lead to unbelief. Well, wait a minute, God, I, you know, I, I believe that you're the provider, you can do anything, you're sovereign, you're on the throne, you made the world, I'm asking you to do this, it doesn't happen the way I'm asking you to do it, so then that leads to, okay, what's going on here? This Christianity thing wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And given the waywardness of ten, wayward tendencies of fallen hearts, the first step you must take each and every day is to remind yourself, yourself of your true identity. During the business of family and work and with all the entanglements of church and community, continue the daily work to orient your life to Christ. Here's John Newton who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. If I may speak of my own experience, I find that to keep my eyes simply upon Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. A thousand such surrenders I have made, and a thousand times I have interpretively retracted them. 
He said, a thousand times I prayed and I said, Lord, you're the most valuable thing in the world. And then something happens, and that's what he means by interpretively. I interpret what happened outside of Christ. So if John Newton has that battle, we probably do too. You can see the well-known pastor and hymnist, Newton, engaged in the conflict we all face. You want to do right, but you find yourself doing the opposite, as the Apostle Paul said of himself in Romans 7. It's the daily call to die to yourself. So we'll see some more of that in a moment. But you see that it references Romans chapter 7 there. And I made reference to this the other day, but it's important enough that, and some of you weren't here, so I want to underscore it for a minute. But remember at the end of Romans chapter 7, that's where Paul is talking about the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. And then he asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? O wretched man that I am. So John Newton had that. The apostle Paul had that. But the good news is, Newton said, I have to a thousand times, I have to keep coming back to, okay, put your eyes on Jesus. And Paul had to do the same thing. And so he doesn't stay with that morbid, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death at the end of Romans 7. But rather he ends that chapter with, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then starts the next chapter. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you regularly, I regularly, we have to keep doing that. Keep doing that coming back to Christ, lifting our gaze beyond the narrow confines of our circumstances. So let's delve into the battle a little bit further, bottom of page 17. The fight for your identity is the same flesh-spirit battle that you face as a Christian. Galatians 5.17, that's referenced there, that you know, the spirit is at war with the flesh, the flesh is at war with the, the spirit. Now, when the Bible uses the word flesh, it doesn't mean your body. It's important to know that. You, know, you read that and you say, okay, there's my body and there's my spirit. And my body's bad. Well, no, God made your body. And as a matter of fact, God came in a body 2,000 years ago. God came, Jesus came, and he took a body and he became human, the God-man. And he's going to return in a body. And you're going to have a glorified body in the future. So God is good with the body. So when it talks about the flesh, it's not talking about your body. The flesh is talking about your sin nature. That's a, a Greek word in your New Testament, sarx, and it means that. It means your nature outside of Christ, your sin nature. And you've got the Spirit, and, you've got, and, and as a Christian, you're, some, you're, con, you're consigned for the rest of your earthly life to be a bit schizophrenic. Because you have the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, you also have the flesh. You have the sin nature. And so you are still tempted, and that's what creates that battle. That's why Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. That's where it comes from. The enemy, while using the world's temptations, aligns with your flesh to shift your identity and ultimately your focus away from Christ. So think about the, the enemy, Satan. Using the world's temptations. Now, what that means is, remember I said in James chapter 1, the process of temptation and sin is like 
dangling bait in front of a fish. That's the exact illustration that James uses. So what Satan does is the bait is the stuff, the, the vanity fair that is the world and all of the things that can allure. And the thing about each of us is we've all got different things that allure. I may not be tempted by the same things you are. Remember, we talked about the guy who's got his career. We talk about the woman who's finding our identity. There's the list of things that can allure an individual are endless. And so yours may not be mine, mine may not be yours, but here's the thing, Satan's watching you and how you operate and what you care about. And so he desires to put the things that obviously make you tick in front of you in order for you to bite on the bait. That's what's meant by the enemy using the world's temptations. Yes, there's, the, you know, there's sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all of that. Those are the world's temptations, but the world's temptations are more than that. They are just money. They are just happiness in the American dream as defined by somebody other than God. Those kinds of things. And that aligns with your sin nature, your flesh, to shift your identity, take your focus away from Christ. We should be careful, bottom of page 17, at the temptation to minimize our involvement in taking the bait. For the sinner's rebellious nature finds the forbidden thing more attractive, not because it's inherently attractive, but because it furnishes an opportunity to assert one's self-will. That's from John, John MacArthur. Have you ever thought about that? You know, there's the old thing about the forbidden fruit. And so why is the forbidden fruit so attractive? And it may not be that the thing is actually all that attractive. It's just, it's a way for me to say who's in control. Which is precisely, if you remember several weeks ago, I said is why God gave one tree in the midst of the garden that you may not eat of. You may freely eat of all the trees in the garden, but of this one tree... You may not. And what God was doing was reminding Adam and Eve, as we need to be reminded, that even though He gave them this great place and He gave them all this freedom and He delegated this authority, that indeed it's all delegated from God and He's still in control. But we're allured by the one thing that can say, no, no, I'm in control. And it may not particularly be attractive at all. But as John MacArthur saying here, what's attractive about it is it's an opportunity to assert my own self-will. Seeing yourself in the light of truth requires scriptural discernment and a firm grasp of the gospel to overcome the indwelling shame, fear, and guilt that's resident in your sin nature, your flesh, and which makes it so difficult to accept the truth about yourself. Now, you read that paragraph after what we've gone through the last several weeks, you should be able to understand what that's saying now. And if you weren't here the last several weeks, those recordings are on our website. But what that's saying is if you understand the gospel, if you have a grasp of the gospel and the acceptance that you have before the Father with Jesus, now you can overcome the shame, the fear, and the guilt and honestly face yourself. That's what it's saying. But outside of that, you don't honestly face yourself. You cover up. 
The freedom of the gospel only comes when your focus is building up your new identity in Christ and leaving these sin nature-inspired identities behind. Many Christians never fully get that. Their souls are too tender, too sensitive from past evil or years of poor soul care. It's similar to providing care to a burn victim. Any attention initially brings the pain. It's too excruciating to peel back the many layers of of life's self-centered solutions to allow for a new identity to take root. As a result, they stand firm in who they think they are, daily defending their self-reliant tendencies and self-righteous ways. Yikes. It's all a mouthful, but it's all true. Many Christians never get to this point. So I'm looking at a lot of people that I know and love who've been many Christians for a long time. And if I were a betting man, though, I'd be willing to wager a good number of us have not gotten to this point. We've gone to church for years. We've read the Bible for years. We've taken classes for years. But when it comes to our functional identity, what I really think about myself and how I then process what is going on in my life, we haven't gotten to this point. And so we make excuses, we have rationalizations, we try to cover up for what we really are by more church attendance and by more, and I'm all good for church attendance. But but that doesn't cover up anything. Enticement is the hidden danger of a false identity. It has no power or legitimacy and requires self to defend, justify, promote, refine, reinvent, maintain. You could say it creates a heavy yoke and a propensity towards unbelief. So when helping a hurting friend think correctly and biblically about their identity, the process has to be executed with patience, gentleness, and love. Oh, man. So that patience, gentleness, and love piece, that hits me. Because I have been trained somewhat in some of these big biblical counseling techniques, and I've read this kind of stuff, and David Paulson, Paul Tripp, and all these guys, and I appreciate it, and I've tried to appropriate it as best I can, and I've tried to communicate it as best I can. But it all makes perfect sense to me, and so I just want to grab people and say, okay, you get that? So start doing it. And the whole patience, executed with patience and gentleness and love, can become very difficult because it is very hard to have it implemented in our lives. And the mere fact that it's hard for me to do it in that patient, gentle way shows how hard it is. Because I'm upset with other people for not getting it together, which means I haven't gotten it together. That's how insidious our sin temptation is. So, this clarification and we'll be done. Please understand that a properly aligned in Christ identity does not eliminate suffering from your life, but it does create a new type of freedom as evidenced in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's evident that his life was full of hardships, but he was able to respond positively. For instance, despite being in jail, Paul was able to see a gain in being in jail, right? You see Philippians 1.12 reference there? So he's in jail. He's in jail not because he committed a crime, but because he's preaching the gospel, so he could whine about that. He, if, he, if he has a false view of himself and a false view of God, if he's enthroned some idols in his heart, then he could say, hey, where's my prayer life? What's going on here? Jesus, where are you? This God thing might not be working so well. 
But in Philippians 1.12, he goes, hey, I'm chained to a Roman guard. But he says, as a result, the whole palace guard has heard the gospel. So he, got, he looks at it and goes, okay. So I'm not the one who's in chains. You guys are. Because you guys got to listen to me give you the gospel. So he just looks at it as an opportunity to, to serve Jesus. But that's only because that last line there, his identity was in the gospel. His joy was in Christ's joy. When evil enters your world, it only impacts your temporal life, your life for time. Your identity in Christ is eternal. It remains unchanged, leading you to experience a peace that surpasses your understanding. I mean, that is saying, look, when you get a curveball this week, notice when, not if, you get a curveball this week. When you get a curveball this week, you don't have to wig out. Matter of fact, you shouldn't wig out. Why? Because it's temporal. You understand that your identity hasn't changed. Nothing that's going to happen to you this week. Absolutely nothing that's going to happen to you this week. I have no idea what's going to happen to any of us this week. But I know that absolutely nothing that happens to you this week or to me this week, if we belong to Jesus, is going to change our identity in Christ, which is eternal. So what can harm me? Why should I wig out? That's how I have this peace that surpasses understanding. To illustrate, barring from Chicken Little's demise, some of life's difficulties and challenges represented by rocks of varying shapes and sizes are going to fall from the sky and disrupt your existence. But if your identity is something other than Christ, that rock is going to deliver a crushing blow to you, leaving you dazed and confused. But if your identity is in Christ, these rocks will no longer have a crippling effect. Although they still have to be dealt with, you can navigate around the obstacle and address the disruption in a much calmer, gospel-centered, liberating way, in a way that reminds you, and by the way, in parentheses there, and others, so your witness plays a role here. It reminds you and it reminds others that you are living characters in God's wonderful story of redemption. Those curveballs, as I said a few weeks ago, are not a change in God's plan. They are God's plan. And you fit into it. If you see your life that way, it radically alters your perspective. All right, we will continue with page 19 next week. Bring those notes back with you, if you will. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the blessings of today. Thank you, Lord, for encouraging and being encouraged one to another. So the opportunity to converse, and to help one another, but also to, with one voice, as it were, as one man, to sing praise to you as your people in Christ. And then, Lord, to hear from you, from your word, and now to have this hour to contemplate the way temptation works so subtly in our hearts and gets its entanglements around our hearts such that it affects all aspects of our lives. Lord, help us to think about this coming week. Even this afternoon, we can have things happen to us that are outside our paradigm. So, Lord, we need to shift the paradigm. We need to shift the perspective so that everything fits into it. Everything is seen as coming from your hand. Somehow, even the bad things you are working together for good, your word tells us, for your people. And so help me to have that perspective all week, every day. Help your people to do that as well. As a result of that, may we have the peace that transcends understanding. May we have the joy of the Lord. May other people see that in us and want what we have. 
Grant us safety, we pray. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.